Salam guys, I'm Mohsin. Welcome to this episode of Millionaire Muslim. Here's a snippet of what's to come. If you can take that same money from Muslims or whoever and channel it to things that are useful, the kind of stuff that I've just talked about, that has a big impact. That's the kind of Islamic finance I'm interested in. Before we get into this episode, we just wanted to spend a few seconds telling you about Islamic Finance Guru or IFG for short. Mohsin and I co-founded IFG in 2015 because we couldn't find content about personal finance and Islamic finance for Muslims like you and I. Nowadays, Alhamdulillah, we reach an audience of hundreds of thousands and our goal is to keep providing great content to help you guys. So if you're looking for halal investments in Islamic mortgages or startup funding, check us out at islamicfinanceguru.com. At IFG, we really value someone trying to run a halal business without dealing in riba. And we love it when Muslims bring something innovative to the table. And that's why we support Shropshire Hills-based Euro Quality Lamb, the largest Muslim-owned lamb abattoir in Europe. And, and I've actually been there and they're doing something genuinely impressive and it has infused within it the Muslim ethos. What's special about Euro quality is that out of the 15,000 lambs they process every week, they only select a handful of the best breeds of grass-fed lamb for their home delivery service. The meat is cut how you want it, English cuts, desi cuts, barbecue style. You just don't find this stuff at your local butchers. So order online at eurocualitylambs.co.uk forward slash shop and reference Islamic Finance Guru to get yourself a free masala marinade worth £4.50 and a YouTube recipe hijri calendar worth £5. Terms and conditions apply. And if you want to get in touch with us directly, you can get me on mohsin at islamicfinanceguru.com and you can get Ibrahim on ibrahim at islamicfinanceguru.com. Enjoy the episode. So what I wanted to talk about today when it comes to Islamic finance is not what I think you probably expected me to talk about or even think that Islamic finance is about. So... If you know, there's one sentence that I want to kind of encapsulate what I'm going to be talking about today, it's that Islamic finance is not just the corporate. Islamic finance pervades our lives, right? Islamic finance, if it is truly Islamic, if it's truly useful, which is the assumption underlying it, and truly divine, then it needs to be something that's actually permeating our everyday being. And it's only then that we can say that it's you know truly going to have an impact. So it's not just the corporate. But Let's take a step back before I dive into the rest of today's talk. I wanted to check out a couple of statistics, and I think that you've been having a bit of a warm-up with uh, Saeed, was it? Just now. So I might be going over familiar ground. But there's a few interesting statistics that I think are really pertinent to Islamic finance. The first is, of course, that the 1% in the world, they own 45% of the world's wealth. And then you've got 64% who live under $10,000 who have savings or assets under $10,000, and yet they only own 2% of the world's wealth. So that's a massive disparity in the ownership of assets and the ownership of wealth and the access to savings and investment. So that's the first thing. Then you've got the massive problem of about a billion people living under the poverty line, right? That is another point that I want you to kind of keep in mind. That's a big problem in the world. And then the final thing is that you know, what happened? And can I have a show of hands who's an economics student or who's kind of, right, so there seems to be a lot of you. So what was the thing that happened in 2007, 2008, and has been the subject of many a personal statement ever since? What happened? The financial crash. Exactly. So those are the three kind of points that I want you to think about just now. What do you think Islamic finance can say to address these three things. So one is severe inequality. The other is there are some pressing problems in the world. 
And then the third is global financial systemic failures, ideas. So I'd say the risk-averse nature of it would prevent such large artificial bubbles from occurring, which could slightly like mitigate those sort of crashes and happening. Yeah. So the, the brother was saying that if you can avoid through the banning or reduction of uncertain transactions, then you can potentially avoid creating bubbles that were caused by uncertainty. Um, yeah, that's a fair point. Any other ideas? So the, the three were, yeah, sorry, go on. Potentially liberate people from the cycle of debt. Um, and being, you know, the debt trap, constantly, you know, making the cycle of rent, or paying off the mortgage. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And how does Islamic finance in particular address that? I guess it's the asset backed nature of what you buy, which backs up over speculation and inflation prices. Okay, so you're saying that it's inflation, or are you <coughs> saying something else that's the issue? So I think it's something which the school starts up like primary finance yeah. to address, which is the more equal sharing of risk in any kind of loan or what's the Okay, great point. What's your name? Arif. Arib, okay, let me come to you in just a second. Let's run with this point about risk sharing. So what would be the corollary of that? So what would be the link between having a system that's much more focused on risk sharing that would lead to a reduction in inequality? What's the leap there? What's the thing that connects the two? Yeah? I guess it's in times bad, and then both people would be against by that. So for example, if someone needs to hold on yeah, they don't lose everything, the bank also the Yeah. So I think that's a fair point. I mean, we're gonna go into all of this and you know, with every single thing in Islamic finance there's always a counterpoint. So, you know, I will caveat all this discussion with the caveat that, you know, Islamic finance isn't just about risk sharing. It isn't necessarily even about risk sharing. It's about a fairer distribution of risk as opposed to, you know, sharing it equally which are two different things. But yeah, sorry, you were going to say something. Uh, yeah, actually what I wanted to say is one of the things that is not very much talked about in the Islamic finance industry. Uh, what we should remember is that initially uh, the idea was to introduce the two goals, which is from uh, the conventional uh, systems of financing. And what we have to keep in mind is that the underlying philosophy of the Islamic moral economy, which is very much based on the position and supporting the value of human life and so on, which means that the industry as a whole should actually be prone to helping the work with the ones in need and the poor. Yeah. Besides that, any types of instruments that are risk sharing related and so on, there are other instruments that have been developed or like that exist in the and have been stated, such as Zakat and Al Qatan like industry financing, so which are other you know instruments that are not necessarily talking about that yeah. much, but can actually tackle these problems probably even more than any other instrument that yeah. developed or created by the industry. Yeah, completely. Jazakallah for that. That makes sense. And that is something that often is overlooked, that you know, Islam has a big third sector. Islam has a big role for the charity industry. Okay. And then, you know, the final thing that I mentioned, which is, you know, the big pressing problems of the world. What does Islamic finance have to do with that? Any ideas? Why Islamic finance in particular that might better address those issues than other modes of finance? Any ideas? Yeah. The link isn't as direct, but with Islamic finance, the fundamental sort of principle behind the transaction is more so God conscious and more like God fearing, God focused. Yeah. So what you do and what you act upon then changes in comparison to the traditional transaction, the traditional sort of um, well, means of trading. 
um, which would then affect the outcome of certain things and, and how you view an outcome, whether it's yeah. beneficial for someone or not, which in turn would affect some of the problems of the world, but not, not in, a, in, a, in a more indirect way. Okay. So there's some kind of ethical ethos that underpins it all. I mean, I think in the practical world, that doesn't necessarily always play out. But yeah, point taken. Any other thoughts? Um, my interesting side of the financial crisis was the selling of loan derivatives. I don't think that could... The whole Islamism is not based on river. It's, not based, it's a very different structure. So you wouldn't allow this accumulation to the hands of a very few people to be smart kind of derivative, second interest derivative. You wouldn't be allowed. Yeah. Less, you get less concentration of wealth. Yeah, I think that. I mean, that is a, that goes to the third point about you know the systemic risks within the market, and you know the Quran specifically states how you shouldn't. It's talking about wealth and how it shouldn't just circulate within the rich or amongst you. So I mean, that, I think that's a fair point. So what I was thinking about was that you know with the risk sharing attitude that comes with sorry, not risk sharing, with a more equal distribution of risk that comes with a greater amount of due diligence in every transaction. Because rather than a bank just giving you a loan, and even if you mess up, it doesn't matter, the bank still, you know, you still owe that loan. And the bank doesn't care if your business has failed or whatever has failed, you still owe that loan and the bank can come after you for that. Rather than that set up, if there is a much more proximate relationship between you and the bank, and the bank and the underlying transaction and the underlying activity that's going on. If something happens to what you're doing with the money, the bank may more likely get hit as a result of that than if it was just a conventional bank. If that's a setup, then what's the the likely outcome of due diligence? Would it go up? Would it go down? It would probably increase. And that's what we find with Islamic banks generally. I'll come back to you. And so if that's the case, then my kind of thesis is that you know there is an increased amount of risk that Islamic financial institutions are going to be taking on. And in order for that risk to be properly remunerated, in order for it to be justified for them from, from a commercial perspective to do that, they need to then start focusing in on the big, knotty problems that are out there, because that's where you can make potentially massive returns. So that's this is just a thought that came to mind literally as I was walking in today, but uh, interested to hear your thoughts about it as well at some point. But I'm just aware of the time, so I want to crack on. What I'm going to do today is, inshallah, talk around four different sections. The first is the overarching principles of Islamic finance, so that you guys can hang your hats on something and say, you know, this is, in a nutshell, this is roughly what Islamic finance is. Of course, there's a lot more to it than that. The second is talking about the practical applications in our everyday lives of Islamic finance. And then the third is talking a little bit about the corporate world and how Islamic finance has a role within the corporate world. And then finally, I'll talk about Islamic Finance Guru, what we do at Islamic Finance Guru, how you guys can get involved with IFG, and then we'll wrap up, inshallah. So overarching principles of Islamic finance. There's roughly two things, if you really just boil it all down, that Islam really wants to encourage and maximize. And that's where Islamic financial principles, the Sharia, you know, the rulings about uh, everything to do with buying and selling derive from? Two principles, any idea what they would be? One is transactions. Okay, that's part of it, but it's not exactly what I'm looking for. Any ideas? So again, think about you know the high-level things that we talked about just now and how Islamic finance addresses that. What does Islamic finance want to reduce in the world? Fairness. Right, great. So that's one. So Islamic finance 
and the Sharia, you know, Islamic finance is this weird term, the Sharia, God's divine law, how we should live our lives and conduct our affairs, dictates that you should conduct yourself in a financial manner in a way that reduces inequality, right? So that's the first principle. And then the second high-level principle is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants to reduce uncertainty in the markets, in transactions, in the world generally. For those of you who study law or economics, any ideas why uncertainty is bad, or anyone who's you know ever been involved in transactions that have gone slightly haywire, any ideas? Why is uncertainty such a bad thing? It's costly. What's that? It's costly. Okay, go on. How is it costly? Well, I guess it's a bad thing depending on which point of view you're looking at it from. Mm-hmm. Some markets are more to make a huge gain off of that uncertainty, but others start to make a huge loss. Yeah. Which would only widen the inequality gap, I guess. Yeah, but taking a step back and thinking of it from a macro perspective, is that activity, you know, useful? And if it is, then, you know, tell me. And if it isn't, then again, tell me why not. So are you uh, going to say? Yeah, I think would it be slightly inefficient as well if you're basing your business decisions on, say, the market yeah. and you were to, say, an inflated market and target that because you see that it is something that's growing. Yeah. So its underlying assets aren't backed in the correct way, then you're essentially targeting the market that, the market that it is, isn't what it says it is. Yeah. So that's not exactly what I'm after with uncertainty. So what I mean by uncertainty is that you decide that you're going to enter into a contract where you're buying, I don't know, a book from someone. It's a really rare book. It's worth about a thousand pounds. You're a student. You don't have a thousand pounds. And, you know, you say, all right, fine, I'll take the book now and I'll pay you back over the next 30 days, right? Now, what could be the uncertainty in this situation? Has anyone studied law here? Or oh, studying law? Okay. This is your moment to shine. Around trust, yeah. Uh, I mean, just think of the words that I've said. So I agree to pay you over the next 30 days, a thousand pounds in equal installments. You might not be able to fulfill that contract for uh, open years. <coughs> yeah. I mean, that's a fair point. There is a degree of uncertainty there. But that's a commercial uncertainty that, you know, the person who's your counterparty who's selling the book has to necessarily take, right? Because default risk is always going to exist pretty much in every transaction. So that's not what I'm after. I'm after something much more, you know, practical. So if you notice, the second time I said what I said, I added in that you would be paying in installments equally over the 30 days. So that was the first uncertainty that how are the mechanics of this thing going to work, right? And the second thing is days. Is it weekdays? Is it business days? I mean, how do you define business days? Is it business days defined under English law? Or is it business days defined by, I don't know, whatever other kind of definition you want to use? Because that has a big impact, right? Because if you're using business days and it's the month of December, then that is very different between the UK and, say, you know, Saudi Arabia, for example. There'll be very different outcomes as a result of that. So let's say there's uncertainty and you decide that you're going to, your, you know, Saudi background, you're like, okay, fine, I'm going to pay according to the Saudi business days. And the other guy is operating off a different standard. And so what's going to naturally happen as a result of this after a certain period of time between the two of you? Yeah, so what's the person selling the book going to say to you buying the book? Are they going to be happy? Are they going to be sad? Sad because they, they wouldn't have expected more. Well, it depends on uh, if it works out for them or not, right? But if it doesn't, assuming it doesn't, 
then they're going to be angry, right? Because they expected that payment within the month and it hasn't happened. And so, I mean, this is, you know, really laboring the point, but uncertainty is really bad because it causes dispute. Uncertainty is really bad because it increases friction in transactions and people have to do more work to make something happen and more due diligence to make something happen. Uncertainty is bad because you don't necessarily even know what you're transacting over because you know it could be uncertainty over the, the item that you're transacting over. So really high level in Islam does not like uncertainty and it does not like injustice or inequality in society. And for the you know philosophers or political philosophers amongst you, you'll be feeling aggrieved that I've kind of elided between the term justice and equality so easily. But there you go. Okay, so two high level principles and then it breaks down into roughly three kind of really simple rules, you know, like a thou shalt not kill kind of thing. Those kind of rules, which are known as kind of deontological rules, if you want to uh, get technical about it. The first one is don't deal in interest, right? And can anyone tell me what that means? You know, really simply, I mean, the first person here who answers that question has the easiest job because there's obviously a simple answer to that one and then it's more complicated answers. Fine. What is interest? Give me an example of a transaction involving interest. Okay, that may or may not be true depending on the transaction. Maybe a simpler transaction than that. Yeah. Okay, I mean, that's a slightly more complicated transaction, which I will talk about in just a second. Really simple. So there are two types of interest that are interested in one of them is when you exchange one type of good to another type of good. There was a hadith from Rasulullah when Bilal exchanged one type of like a good quality days yeah. uh, to uh, low quality days. Yeah. Also, uh, right, exactly. So there's riba nasi riba al I don't want to get technical about it today. I want to keep it really high level. So interest, I mean, really simply, is something like a credit card, right? You take money, you take a hundred pounds, you don't pay it. After a certain point, you'll get charged interest, and you have to pay back 110 pounds. That's interest. That's not allowed in Islam. Really simply, if you're giving something and you're getting something more out of it, and the exchange is just pure money, then that is interest, right? So you could say, well, in the Quran it says as well that, you know, they say that buying and selling and trade is like riba. Uh, but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, He has made riba haram and He has made buying and selling halal. And the difference between the two is that with the trade, there's always an exchange of an asset involved as opposed to the buying and selling of money itself, right? And the reasoning behind that, I mean, we actually did a lecture last year on, you know, why is interest haram? So I need to refresh my mind on that. Or, or people who, you know, were there, maybe you've got better memories. But there's a whole host of philosophical reasons and practical reasons why you want to say that interest is haram. Why you don't want to be buying and selling money, you want to actually be getting an asset involved. So that's the first, you know, kind of really basic interest that you might have. But then there's other kind of interest. So, you know, like the brother mentioned on Forex and margin trading. Any show of hands who know roughly what Forex is or how it works? Okay, cool. So with Forex, where does the interest come in? It could arguably come in in a few places, but the one that I want to talk about is where if you model margin trading as this situation where essentially the broker is giving you an interest-free loan, to go ahead and trade with that money, 
because you know you in margin trading you only put down one pound and you get to buy a hundred pound or a thousand pound worth of the currency so where's that money coming from if you model it as a loan from the broker which i don't think is necessarily always the best way to model it but let's say you do then your analysis is that the broker gives you that money and then the broker takes exactly that money back because you have a margin and the broker will just never ever let you lose its money itself and so you've got the situation where you say well the broker isn't making any interest out of this but the problem is there's a catch and the catch is that the broker is always going to make a fee as a result of that transaction and so that is an example of interest through the back door because there you've got a fixed return that is a necessary condition of loaning that interest free loan from that broker and so the net result is the broker is giving you a thousand pounds and it's getting back a thousand pounds plus its fees and that will be an example of interest another interesting example of interest yeah sorry just a quick question on that um, uh, if, if that if that would be like classified as interest wouldn't, wouldn't that fee be um, also the, the service they provide and so how so how is that how can you restrict it from the interest or maybe you're paying for service that could be any other service good question so Again, it really just depends on the specifics of these things and you know the specifics of the contract and is it really a service that they're providing, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That's one thing. And the second thing is when that loan is linked to the fee-paying element of it, then regardless of whether or not they're performing any specific service, they're getting something more out of it than they put in. So it's not like they're giving a qalb hasan. It's not like they're just giving an interest-free loan for the hell of it. They have something that they're going to make out of the back of it and whenever that happens you're running into problems now i have you know previously seen structures and worked on structures where you know you can try and create a system where you're giving an interest free loan but it's kind of up to you to do that and the service fee is separate so the two things are not linked but whenever the two things are linked you know in every single transaction like they are with the forex context that's where you run into problems so then the final thing that i want to talk about with interest an interesting example is banks right so what actually is happening when you've got a current account with i don't know uh, santander what's actually happening is that you're loaning the money to the bank and the bank is called an on demand deposit right and the bank will give it back to you whenever you ask for that money back but really it's a loan to the bank so for all of the students in this room which i imagine is most of you you see these campaigns where banks offer you 100 pounds or 150 pounds to sign up with them that would be an example of interest because you're putting in money you're lending money to a bank and the bank is then giving you more as a result of that now again you know there's lots of arguments to and fro about this and i can see some of them running through your minds right now but that would be an example of interest so that's the first point so the, the three kind of practical thou shall not kill rules the first is no interest the second is no gharar no uncertainty in a transaction and the third is no maysid no gambling and you know that kind of stuff you're going to say something i was just going to ask about the example that you gave yeah bank giving you money to sign up to an account yeah so is that classified as interest because it's almost like you're making money for not doing anything essentially is that why that um uh, i think it just classifies an interest purely on the basis of the form of the contract So the contract is a loan agreement between you and the bank yeah. and you've lent money to the bank and you're getting money as oh, a result of it. Yeah. I mean, look, the counter argument to that is should we model from a shelly perspective, should we model someone paying a deposit into an account 
as a loan in the pure sense of in the actual spirit of the transaction. Because I imagine the majority of you didn't know that you know your current account is actually a loan to the bank before I said it, right? And and that's because we don't view it as such, and it's not economically that approach that we take when we're thinking about it. So the counter argument could be let's apply the real life analysis to the situation, and therefore you would be allowed to, for example, take that bonus. My personal view is that you shouldn't. So I'm just aware of the time, so I'm going to race through some of the other points. So no qarar, no uncertainty in a transaction. We've talked about that already. No maser, no gambling. We don't like gambling because it's a zero-sum game. So as you know, I think the brother was saying how sometimes in every uncertain maser-type transaction, gambling-type transaction, someone wins, someone loses. So maser, where you're betting on a horse, for example, is a zero-sum game where someone win, will win and someone will lose. And usually it's the betting company uh, and usually you end up losing. But in either case, it's not a net productive transaction. It's not a transaction that is necessarily adding value to the world. You know, you're betting on what's the underlying thing underlying that transaction. It's chance. It's the chance that a certain horse will win that race. And, you know, whether or not it does or not, it's not necessarily in itself beneficial to transact over that. And when you do transact over that, someone will lose out. And so for all of those reasons, uh, Islam really doesn't like gambling. And then there's obviously the social reasons that come out of it as well. If you legalize gambling, then it causes a, a segment of society, a minority who use gambling facilities to um, have all sorts of really bad social impacts as well. But let's talk about practically now, because I think this is the important thing. So as an individual, I wanted to talk about three things that I think will be interesting for you guys and that has a link to Islamic finance. So as an individual, you know, one of the really important things that I'm sure you guys are thinking about is what should I do for the rest of my life, right? What career should I have? What job should I apply for? What's halal, what's halal? Any ideas how Islamic finance has to relate to that? Well, if your um, salary or income is coming from Riba, then that's wrong. Yep. Everything you buy or eat or clothes that you wear will be considered haram just by you earning Exactly. And that's the specific hadith that you're talking about, how malbasuhu haram, shrabu haram, etc, etc. So how can his dua be accepted? So this is a hadith about the person who is a traveller and he's really under hardship. But normally this such a person's dua would be accepted, but here it's not because his house, his clothing, his food, his drink, everything is haram. He's got money from haram. And so, exactly. So that would be a direct link to his side of finance. Yeah. Okay, great. So that's actually the second bit, which is, you know, some of you, and I encourage all of you to do this as much as possible, which is going to entrepreneurship, set up your own business. If that's the way that you're inclined and you think you can make a good go at it, then you should do that, especially early on in your careers, because you've got much less at stake. So, right, if you're going to set up a business, what are the kind of things that you think about from a Sherry perspective about that business when you're setting it up? You said for financing, you'd look for, what kind of financing do you have? I mean, there's two kinds of financing broadly. Yeah. Debt and equity, okay. So debt, obviously, you know, you want to go for an Islamic finance type arrangement. What about a grant from the National Lottery? Would that be all right? I think it's debatable, right? You could say, well, because that money was originally around. Yeah. But then in real life, how do you avoid revival? Right? Yeah. If you get a loan from anyone, what's the risk that that was being by revival? Yeah. 
So uh, agreed. And I think the conclusion is that if someone is giving you a grant, i.e. they're giving you a gift, then that is not you transacting with that person on like a basis of interest. It doesn't really matter what the source of that money is, so long as you are getting that money in a halal transaction. So if you're just getting a grant from someone, if someone is just literally giving you money, then that's fine. And the implications of saying contrary to that manifold, and it makes life a lot more difficult otherwise. I don't want to go too much off the topic. Let's say, for example, if I like, sold goodies and you were an investment banker and you bought a video of me, obviously the money you made was off interest. Yeah. Then I obviously used that money to that I sell goodies from to I'm going to keep my kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's fine. That's fine. Yeah, of course. Because what have you done in that transaction? You sold the hoodie. That's the object of the transaction, right? And you've been paid money for that. That's it. That's all you need to focus on. Now, it gets more complicated if you are, you know, in the classic 50 books, if you are the seller of uh, grapes, for example, in a valley that is renowned for its wine in France, for example. Now, that context makes it a lot more interesting because technically the transaction that you're undertaking with your selling grapes is fine. But because of the proximate link between 90% of the people buying from you and what they're going to go on and do, you know, there could be an argument that you say that you should avoid that. And the Hanafis, generally speaking, they allow that transaction, especially the more liberal views amongst the Ahnaf. But, but that's where you could have a debate. But generally speaking, you just look at the transaction itself rather than you know, reaching down into the long-term kind of implications of what happens. So equity, what could be, let's say you go for equity finance for your business. What would be the Islamic financial kind of implications or things that you would have to consider about then? Where would you get money? equity money, where would you get that kind of investment from? I mean, it's probably a slightly unfair question, but go on. It's not actually good to be to engage in investment Yeah. Okay, yeah. So those two are fine, right? But when you start going for venture funding, for example, or private equity funding, that gets a bit more interesting because generally speaking, these guys will want certain conditions built into their contract, which give them some sort of preference. If, for example, you go bust, they want their money back before anyone else gets their money, etc., etc., etc. That's where you know Islamic finance and the Sharia could have uh, a role to play when thinking about that as well. So the final thing I want to talk about from a practical perspective is who do you bank with? I think that hands up who has an Islamic bank account. Okay, so it's a quite a small minority in the room. And, you know, I'm in the process of setting up an Islamic bank account, but I'm, for the most of my life, I've never had an Islamic bank account. And, and I actually think that's not a good thing. I think we should support Islamic banks. You know, there's two and a half million to three million Muslims in the UK, but guess how many customers that Arayan has over its 15-year history? Have a guess. 80,000. Yeah, 85,000. And a big chunk of them are actually non-Muslims as well because Arayan offer the best savings rate, so it attracts everyone. But I don't know if it's only Arayan as such, but it's not very welcoming. You're pretty much getting gold back with Halifax and Obama. I hear you on that. We'll give you a loan anyway, so very nice. And I completely, I mean, you're preaching to the converted. We, I mean, on Islamic Finance Guru, we literally review these banks, right? So I'm currently going through a process of getting an Islamic mortgage from Gatehouse. So it's going to be quite fun when I actually write the review of the whole process. But there's two things I would say to that. The first is, if you bank with an Islamic bank, then that gives them the liquidity 
to be able to actually do stuff that makes them more profitable, that helps them invest more in customer support, that makes the overall experience better, right? That's the first thing that I would say. And the second thing I would say is that I think long term, the more that we support Islamic banks and the more that we support the Islamic financial institutions, the more likely it is that lots of competition is going to come along. And I can see already, you know, in our pipeline, we can see that there's a whole bunch of interesting Islamic finance startups coming into the fray. And, you know, even some uh, players from overseas are entering into the market as well. So the more we interact with Islamic finance, the more it becomes a proposition that's of interest to people from a commercial perspective. And then they put more money into it and it makes a better product at the end of the day. And then the final thing I'd say is that if you're banking with a non-Islamic financial institution, then that money is going to be supporting their activities, whether or not you are taking the interest from their account or not. The way that banks work is that the money sat in their account is risk capital. And it's on the basis of that amount of money that they have that they will then um, lend out money. Uh, it's not a direct correlation. They don't take that money and lend it out. It's not how, that's not how it works. But there is a link. So the more money they have, the more money ultimately that they'll be lending out and making profit from interest from. So ultimately, I think given the choice between the two, we should support Islamic banks. And this is, of course, um, assuming that you accept Islamic banks as Islamic and what they're doing as Islamic. Yeah. Well, I think that's a bit of a dangerous notion because you're encouraging people to support a system which is, you know, it's not up to standards. They overcharge. It's what they call the customer tax. Yeah. They, you know, they've been poor customers' experiences, and it's almost like you're being punished for adhering to your values. That's a really good point. Which it just doesn't sit well with me and yeah. many other. I think younger people from the younger sort of generations. Uh, so I think I think that's a dangerous kind of view to to make. Yeah. I mean, I hear you on that. And part of the reason why I say that is because where I see Islamic finance guru fitting with all of this is that, you know, we can, we can actually hold these banks to account. When we get a lot of traction, when we get more and more people coming through us to these Islamic banks, we can really try and help shape, frankly, Islamic banks and the way they behave. Because, you know, if, if an Islamic bank, and I think this has not really happened uh, up till now, where, you know, if someone is trying to choose something, um, they know that generally Islamic banks are not very good but they don't really know specifically um, you know, what is bad about this Islamic bank versus that Islamic bank. And I'm hoping that with this kind of comparison uh, and analysis stuff that we do at IFG, we can essentially raise the standard of this industry. So with that kind of background, that's why I'd like more people to use Islamic banks because that gives us more data, quite frankly. And it is a bit of a chicken and egg situation where you, know, you don't necessarily want to use an Islamic bank because they're awful uh, in many ways but then at the same time if you don't use them then you know they won't be able to progress so it's it's that kind of chicken and egg scenario so really quickly then whizzing through the corporate side of things so i'm i'm a funds formation lawyer i um, help private equity and venture capital fund managers when they're setting up their you know billion pound funds or whatever it is and we help negotiate with the investors that are coming on board and we help structure the funds and all that side of things as well. And then the fund managers go off and start investing the money into various companies. So my background is from a corporate background. I'm a lawyer um, by training. And I share all of this because when I was in your position, I think I was, in a, I was thinking along roughly the same lines, which was that, oh, I'm Muslim. The city is where you make lots of money. And Islamic finance is kind of a way to do that, but in a Sharia compliant way. So you can go into finance and make money, but it's Islamic. So... 
you know, it kind of all works out. And my kind of take on all of this is that Islamic finance in the city is basically not very interesting, not very compelling in the majority of cases, because the majority of Islamic finance work, it would only ever be really a subset of your overall practice, because it's just not enough of the work to you know, be a full-time thing unless you're based in the Middle East. And the kind of work it is, it's just going to be loan transactions that are very similar in risk and very similar in structure to mainstream transactions. I mean, you guys have heard of this many times if you've been to any Islamic finance talks and how the corporate Islamic finance sector is really just Islamic in form as opposed to spirit. And I'm speaking from personal experience of it. And I realized that you know I don't necessarily want to make rich Muslims in the Middle East a bit richer because of you know, doing these transactions. I don't think that really has impact. And I frankly, I don't think that that is doing justice to what Islamic finance is all about either. And I genuinely believe that there's probably two key ways where Islamic finance, from the corporate side of things as well, is going to have an impact. And that's, number one, by focusing in on the retail audience and starting from the ground up. So as opposed to starting from Islamic banks who want to tick the box and say that they're Islamic, and so people bank with them and they can carry on doing stuff, we should start with the ground up and think, what are the needs of the people, the Muslim individuals, who will actually use these products and then build from there? So people like Wahid Invest or Yielders, Primary Finance, if they you know get the liquidity they need to achieve what they're trying to achieve. To some extent, people like IFG, where we provide a comparison service. You've got people who do property development. You've got people in the Middle East who offer Islamic Sharia-compliant invoice financing, Sharia-compliant business financing, real needs of people, Sharia-compliant student loan type things as well. These are real needs of people. And if you can address that car finance, right? Sure, come back car finance. If you can address these things, then you are addressing a real need and there's a real market. And people who are addressing that, I think, A, need to be backed, and B, from our generation, I think this is much more the case and that's much more where people are going. So there's, you know, challenger banks being set up, Islamic challenger banks being set up as well, which, again, are getting to the crux of the matter, which is that, you know, your experience, which is Islamic banks are awful in their customer service a lot of the time. And why do we not then change that by creating an online bank which has a great customer service? So that would be a really practical way of dealing with that problem. So it's thinking about it rather than from high level downwards, thinking of it more from a retail, ordinary person's perspective upwards. And then as a result of that, what happens? Well, these companies then need financing. And that's where the corporates come in. That's what they should be more usefully doing, as opposed to putting all of the money into property for example, or putting all of their money or, or not putting all of their money, just sitting on the money because there isn't really any opportunity for them to invest. Or finally, just putting their money into the US stock market, for example, and just you know, having a Sharia compliance screed on um, a thousand equities and you know, just plunking the money into that. Because again, I think that's to some extent it is valuable. I mean, it's, it's a, a useful thing to do in society, but it's not the most impactful thing to do in society. So Broadly speaking, I suppose I'm saying two things. One is that if you're looking to go into Islamic finance, then try and look at things from the ground up and solve real problems, because that's when it's going to be worthwhile. And then secondly, and this is something you know I'm really passionate about, which is that if as a Muslim community where 44% of people are in the 10% poorest constituencies in the UK, if that is going to change, if the one and a half billion or so Muslims in the world who live in the developing world if they are going to go from being in the developing world to being in the developed world, if that's going to happen, then we need to bet big on entrepreneurship. We need to bet big on startups, on tech. We need to back 
people and equip them as well at the same time to be able to create the next Amazon, create the next Google or Facebook. You know, if you think of, if you rewind into the 1990s, the majority of the top 10 companies in the world, they were bricks and mortar companies that used to sell stuff, right? And now the majority of the companies in the world, I think they were saying like about half of the 1400 billion companies in the world just sit in Silicon Valley, this tiny place in America, right? That's the power of, you know, cracking the puzzle when it comes to tech and cracking the puzzle when it comes to entrepreneurship. And it creates an ecosystem. And we've seen the same thing with London, to some extent, with the same thing with Tel Aviv, to some extent, because these are places that have really become ecosystems of startups and entrepreneurship. And I believe that that is inherently what Islamic finance is about, taking that kind of approach to investing and that kind of approach to spending that money. Because ultimately, again, this is now me going on a real tangent. What is finance about? It's about taking money from people who don't need it necessarily straight away and giving it to people who do, right? And then there's an intermediary process, which is the financial service, which is the city, where it kind of takes that money, packages it up, regulates it, whatever, casts a spell over it, packages it up again, and then distributes it out into uh, people who need to use it. And then it gets the profit back, and then it gives it back to people who uh, own it in the first place. And this kind of merry-go-round goes on. And if we can, uh, Islamic finance, as opposed to normal finance, if you can take that same money from Muslims or whoever, and channel it to things that are useful, the kind of stuff that I've just talked about, that has a big impact. That's the kind of Islamic finance I'm interested in. And then finally, what do IFG do and how can you get involved? I mean, check us out, check our website out, sign up to our mailing list. But in a nutshell, what we try and do is we uh, try and help Muslims make smart financial decisions about their halal investing, matching them up with the best opportunities that we found have come across and done our research, met the people, had dinner with them, shouted at them, whatever and then presented to our audience. And that's global opportunities. Then we've got assignment mortgages, where we help people find the right assignment mortgage for them. And then finally, we help startups get funding and we invest in startups ourselves. And so this year we've done over well over 2 million worth of funding into startups. And inshallah, we want that to increase a lot more. And you know that might sound like a lot of money, but you know, that's really just in the biggest picture what we just talked about, a drop in the ocean. And that's only going to change if you know all of us get involved and you know try and make that change happen. And then in terms of talking about the why we do this, the way I see Finance Guru is it's an ecosystem that helps Muslims understand their economic life from an Islamic perspective. And it helps employees, right? If you see the world as employees or entrepreneurs, it helps employees get connected up with entrepreneurs. So it could be employees who want to get an Islamic mortgage and the entrepreneur is you know, I don't know, Gatehouse Bank. It could be someone who wants halal investment and the entrepreneur could be Yielders, uh, the property crowdfunding company. Or it could be an employee who wants to invest in startups and we connect them up with whoever we decide to you know, connect them up with. And so if we can do our role as that conduit in an honest and careful and articulate way, then I really hope that, you know, inshallah, we can have a big impact on kind of kickstarting the Islamic economy in the UK, but inshallah, globally as well. And then how can you guys get involved? So we are very, very open to people coming and writing for us. We're very open to guest articles and ideas that you might have for that. So, you know, just drop me a line, Ibrahim at SamicFinanceGuru.com. Just go on our website and you know contact us and that will come through to us. And you know we're happy to get as many of you guys involved as possible. And actually, you know, at some point or another, we will need to start hiring people in the next few months. 
So part of this whole journey is going to be, you know, getting people to write content. But the people who are really interested, then, you know, there is that opportunity as well to get really involved in this journey that we're trying to take. And then I suppose the final thing to say is that, you know, to the extent that you guys are involved in any kind of startup entrepreneurship, then, you know, just check in with us because we will almost certainly be able to help you with that, whether it be just general advice, whether it be connecting you up with people that can help you or whether it be, you know, helping you with actually raising the funding as well. That's all stuff that we can potentially help you with, inshallah. So that's all I had. We've got a few minutes for questions and then I will sadly have to dash off because we're, as always, in the middle of a closing. So, uh, uh, yeah, I just want to ask about, you know, the current uh, conditions of the uh, finance, uh, finance industry. Do you see that the current conditions of that the industry is growing and is it growing like exponentially or is it growing like it's a constant growth or maybe it's like it's going towards a slump like how do yeah. you see the islamic finance industry probably in the next five years Good question. So where do I see the Islamic finance industry going in the next five years? So I think that the Islamic finance industry, anyone who's done any research in the Islamic finance industry will see these massive numbers thrown around. I don't think that's particularly useful. And I don't think that that really captures the real activity that Islamic finance is providing. I think it's less than that. And I think that that is only going to continue unless you know, people, which I see happening now, by the way, actively start doing something different to what has previously been done. That sounds really complicated. What I'm essentially saying is that rather than the old Islamic finance, where people issue a sukuk, which is basically a nicely packaged version of a bond, and give it to the corporate company to let it tick its environmental, social and governance kind of tick box, rather than doing that, if we start channeling money into things that are genuinely useful and really interesting, that's where I think we will see real growth and real change. It's the same kind of, without getting really abstract, it's kind of thinking now, you know, in your generation, when you think about great employers in, in London, what kind of employers do you think about? Who's a really cool employer to work for? Google. Right, that's the first name everyone thinks of, Google. And if you asked that 10 years ago, someone would have said, what? Any ideas who would have, what they would have said? They would probably say Goldman Sachs, I think, right? That's the kind of pinnacle of, you know, the most competitive and interesting, compelling thing to get into, the most prestigious thing. These days, it's Google, Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, whatever. And it's that kind of shift from the old money way of doing it to a new money way of doing it. That's, in a nutshell, what I'm kind of getting at. And I think that if the old Islamic finance decides to support the new Islamic finance, I think we really kick on and do great things. If it doesn't, then... I think that both will carry on as they are and you know there will be progress because the core underlying drivers of progress which is a growing and young population that is digitizing fast that has increasing amounts of money where infrastructure is increasing globally and this is talking about the Muslim community as a whole those things are all going to be helping you know the old Islamic finance and the new Islamic finance grow in any case but where you can have synergies between the two things then I think that you can have real impact and real acceleration in growth. And that's beyond just, you know, big numbers, but that's actual impact. Well, my question is something the same. So earlier on, you actually mentioned one of the experiences you had was when you were working in an institution that was providing you just free financing by just sort of what you said. What was that? Was that it? 
I don't know what you're. Yeah, earlier on you mentioned that you were involved in the student of Sarah's development with financing careers, and you were talking about the interest rate, kind of institution where you mentioned that they're providing some services and financing at the same time. Oh, the Forex. When we're talking about Forex. Okay, so that's not actually what I'm interested in. Thank you for clarifying that. My question then would be. And probably uh, coming from your answers in the previous question, uh, are you talking about these areas of public finances that tend to actually try to finance the real economy of value like this? And talking about environmental financing, fiscal financing, zakat, and what the impact it could have? And where do you see this going? And how do you see it? Yeah. So I think that's a fair question. I've not really talked about uh, zakat, and I meant to talk about that, and the role of sadaqah and just the voluntary sector. Like a, a vast amount of the Islamic economy back in the day, a few hundred years ago, was run by or owned by the Awqaf, the trusts that were given over as charitable trusts to Allah Subhanahu wa Taala, free to And that's, you know, I think I read a statistic that at a certain point, a third of Egyptian farmland or a third of Egyptian economy was Awqaf assets. And actually, there's still a whole load of Awqaf assets in Egypt to this day. And that has a whole role to play in the overall makeup of the Islamic economy and how one does economics in an Islamic economy that is different to your standard model. And quite frankly, I think that's probably deserving an article. I'm quite keen to, you know, if you're interested, feel free to send me a kind of skeleton and we can have a discussion. I think that would be really interesting to think about what the harnessing of zakat in 21st century Britain looks like. I would imagine that NZF, National Zakat Foundation, have done some fantastic research on that, so that might be a place to start. This is not a weird question, but isn't the whole point of finance industry as it currently exists is to essentially legitimize the money supply, which is itself losing the river. So you've got inflation, you've got ECB and central bank decisions. So either we say, okay, we reject that, or we'll be more pragmatic and bring back the obscure Hanafi fatwa that uses the great fine analogy. Uh, you know, be a bit more pragmatic with it. Do you see, like, because we're dealing with a very weird scenario. Yeah, so I, we I hear what you're saying. Yeah, industry. I hear what you're saying. So you're kind of, the question is, Islamic banks are operating within an overall financial system that is based on haram. And so by using an Islamic bank, for example, engaging in Islamic finance, are we really just pouring water from one cup into another, as opposed to, you know, watering a plant? Yeah, I think and I've written on this before as well. And there's a website called positivemoney.org, which is a really interesting resource on this. And they talk about how the money supply is in the hands of banks. And they actually helped set up a debate in Parliament on this as well. There's a very interesting debate where various different MPs weighed in on their thoughts on this as well. And in a nutshell, I suppose my answer to this is probably twofold. One is that this is such a systemic thing that it really needs a change in fiscal and monetary policy for it to come about. You know, we're talking about money creation, the supply of money in our economy. And the alternative to banks doing it is potentially some kind of quantitative easing for the masses, for example, where rather than quantitative easing, uh, Google it, right, if you don't know what I'm talking about, quantitative easing for the banks, which is what happened, where money was essentially given to the banks, uh, and it was up to them to let, lend it out or not. If that could happen where the money is created but pushed into infrastructure projects, for example, or things that are useful, 
or you know the, the notion of helicopter money, where things money is just given out to people. If that is an alternative way of creating the money supply that we need um, to run our economy, then that could be potentially a more Islamic way of doing it. But in order to do that, that's probably beyond a minority community which constitutes five percent of the population. But we certainly can get back behind campaigns like positive money, and I think the Labour Party, their current economic policies, to some extent, do align with some of the values that positive money to all put forward. So that's one thing I'd say. The other thing I'd say is that Haris Irfan, who is a well-known figure in Islamic finance, he's actually done a podcast with the IFG podcast called Millionaire Muslim. Check it out. He talked about how blockchain technology and the whole cryptocurrency ecosystem, where you have decentralized essentially money, that is a very compelling and potentially very Islamic way of having an alternative to the fiat currency that we currently have. And I think there's some truth in that. And I and I need to do more research into this whole area of blockchain and how it all works and how it could practically deal with this issue. But I think that could be another whole area that, that could address you know, your concern. You said that we're ecosystems invested. You, they already exist. Like, we don't want to be using it. Oh, so I didn't catch. You said they already exist. Where do they exist? Well, what were you um, talking about? So like UAE is one of the largest, you know, largest yeah. Create UAE, I put millions and millions yeah. into Kickstarter and kind of like think tanks as well. Yes. Yeah. But how do you distinguish between Mandy you know, projects? Good question. Yeah. So I think that's it's fantastic that the Middle East is weighing in massively over the last you know five ten years into venture capital. Arguably, it's you know slightly later than they should have done because you know the massive returns were when you could have invested in an early Facebook or an early Netflix or someone. Whereas now uh, that early phase of you know technological boom out of the internet has arguably ended. But of course, there's massive potential with AI and all sorts of other things. I suppose what I'm saying is that it's great that we have, now we have these pools of money, certainly in the Middle East, that want to fund startups and venture. And I think we need more of it. I think the Middle East has probably, is probably the richest area within the Muslim list of countries. But that alone is not enough. I think there needs to be a lot more within the UK, but also from Malaysia and the Far East, which I know are now getting involved in the venture scene as well. So I think it's a welcome step, but there needs to be more of it. And in terms of the vanity project side of things, I think that comes down to just due diligence, financial due diligence and being a good investor and having a good investment thesis and then sticking to it. And and partly also about encouraging as many people as possible to get involved in entrepreneurship. Because if you've got deal flow of, let's say, 3,000 deals a year and you're investing in just 30 of them, and you have a good robust investment method, then you are going to be picking the creme de la creme. And as fund managers, you're incentivized to spend that money. But if you're only looking at a deal flow of about 500, and you're still investing in about 30 companies, then the likelihood is that the number of duds in that 30 is going to increase, or at least the quality or the potential of a massive return is going to decrease. The way venture funds work is they want every one of that 30 to have a shot at becoming a $100 billion company or a billion dollar company, because that's the way their economics works. If you've got seven companies that make three times the return, and you've got three companies that fail, so seven that do all right, and three that fail, overall, 
in 10 years, they're going to be making less than three times return, which is what their investors want them to do, these fund managers. So in order for them to make the returns they need, they need to be investing in companies that make 10 times, 20 times, 30 times return. And they need to maximize their bites of the cherry to be able to pick that company. And so every single time a venture fund will be looking to invest in these kind of massive, you know, hit the ball out of the park kind of companies. But if you have a smaller pool to pick from, then the, num- the potential for you to have picked a high number of those companies in that 30 goes down. So that's probably a very long way of answering probably what's quite a simple question. I better head off. But what I would like to say is that if you guys do have any questions or other thoughts or you'd like to get involved with writing for IFG or anything else, even, you know, potentially podcast ideas, very open to that. You might want to even interview someone and, you know, put that onto the podcast. I mean, from a CV perspective, I think it's really, really helpful. And it's something that has helped me a lot in my career. Not that you would necessarily just do it for that, but it is quite helpful. So please do, you know, get in touch. And I'm sure that the brothers who've arranged this can pass on my details to you and you, know, you can drop me a line and inshallah we can take it from there. Jazakallah khairan. If you got this far, you must have enjoyed the podcast, which means you'll definitely love our other episodes and other content we produce as well, inshallah. Be sure to check out the website, islamicfinanceguru.com, as well as our YouTube channel and social media. Until next time, assalamu alaikum.